Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to the Locked in Science Summer Series. My name is Claire and I'm bringing you some of our favourite stories from 2020 during this summer series. I hope um, hope you're out there having as good a summer as you can, um, considering all things. And this week on the show, we've... Um, We've got a couple of stories for you. The first one is an interview from 2020 with Victoria Camillary Ash, who um, she is a fish biologist and a postdoctoral research fellow. And her expertise is all around how well sharks can smell. Which, I mean, let's be honest, we've all heard the story of a shark being able to smell one drop of blood in an Olympic pool's worth of water. Yeah, so in the interview, we um, test out the veracity of that claim and see how well sharks really do smell compared to the other animals in the animal kingdom. This week, we are also revisiting a story uh, from Chris back in June, uh, talking about why there is more matter in the universe than antimatter. Now, this is a very important question, so I'm told, because the fact that there is more matter than antimatter um, means that we and everything else that literally matters gets to exist. Uh, so definitely stay tuned for that one. Sharks matter and antimatter this week on the show. when I first heard that sharks could smell one drop of blood in a whole beach, but it certainly had me thinking twice about swimming in the oceans with cuts or abrasions. But what does science really know about shark smell and how it works? Are shark noses really as sensitive as we think? Well, our guest on Lost in Science this week is very qualified to give us an answer to confirm or deny my childhood facts. Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash is a fish biologist and postdoctoral research fellow at Queensland University of Technology. Victoria, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you, Claire, for having me. So, Victoria, do sharks smell as well as we think? That's the very question, and then you start my PhD. Um, so, the main thing, I guess, to consider is when you assess um, an animal's ability to detect some signals, let's say olfactory cues in our case, mm -hmm. you can assess it looking at how the olfactory system is organized. That's morphology. You can right. assess it looking at how it functions, and that's physiology. Right. Or you can look at how the behavioral outputs are displayed and that's more ethology, so animal behavioral research. 
And now you can add another layer, actually, that I forgot is uh, molecular biology. You can look at the of genetics course. side of things. So yeah. depending on how many genes are expressed to actually do that task, you can also assess it this way. When I started my PhD research, I was interested in the holistic answer, right? Yes or no? Yeah. Yes or no? Yeah. I know, I know. That's, um, but when you dig down and you look at what's been done, what remains to be done, you kind of come up with an answer which is still in the gray area. Mm. Bluntly, there is no yes or no answers as just yet. It just depends on what you look at. So if yeah. you look at the genetics, for instance, like for fun facts, um, humans have roughly 800 olfactory genes, primates 600, um, mice 1,400. Wow. Um, rats, even a bit more than that. Dogs, um, 1,100, so a bit less. Uh, cows, 2,000. Cows? Yes, so, oh. so far they're topping it. All the fish, roughly 300 and something. Okay. And sharks, you go down to sharks, elephant sharks or other sharks, about 50 to 60 genes. So if you look at just the genetics, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of genetic information expressing receptors mm. able you know, to collect that in kind of information. But then when you look at the brain and the size of the olfactory bulbs compared to the, well, relative to the overall brain size, then sharks have quite big olfactory bulbs. So the brain area used to process that kind of signals, so odors, um, is relatively large compared to other animals. So that's another way to look at it. So morphology. Right. So and that's that's in morphology. You got your genetics, yeah. and then Most, you've got yeah your physiology as well. So in terms of physiology, for instance, the story is a bit different. Um, the sharks can have detection thresholds, so the minimum amount of chemical that can be detected, quite low. So one part in a billion, for instance, for some of the Amazing. chemicals out there, like amino acids, or some of them anyway. Um, so research showed that um, bony fishes are able to detect as low detection threshold for pheromones, for instance, as mm. feeding cues for sharks. So for sharks, we don't know uh, for the pheromones how low uh, that detection threshold might be. Um, that's a research happening right now by a good colleague of mine um, at EQ. So we're going to find out probably soon. The question is not out there yet. So if you want to look into this, um, my good friend Heather Middleton is looking at this at UQ and she's probably going to share that story when it's, when it's out there. Okay, so it sounds like shark smell is a lot more complicated than we thought, but um, they do have that morphological, that sort of like enlarged parts of the brain, um, even though they might not have as many genes as other different animals. So when you went into your PhD, what was your question and what, what were your sort of like research questions about shark smell? Yeah. So based on um, the recap you just did, um, I guess the, the main thing that we, we I stumbled upon and I, I really wanted to get down to knowing more about that was the morphology aspect. We seem to have done quite a lot of research on um, behavioral responses or physiological responses of some chemicals, but not necessarily how the system itself, the wiring to the brain or in within the brain was organized compared to other animals, which can answer 
one bit of the question, if you like, and hasn't been questioned yet as much. Um, so that's the very question I, I tackled and I, I wish I had time to tackle more and I didn't in the end. So I, I stuck to anatomy pretty much. Um, and I guess with shark anatomy, you need um, to go and have a look at some sharks and look at their brains. So take, it, take us through um, how you went about that. There, that's a very good point, actually. So working on these animals is not necessarily easy because, yeah, you need to access some samples uh, or them uh, in nature. So I was lucky, you know, because I chose a lab, the neuroecology group, which was led by um, Professor Sean Cullen at UWA. When I started, um, he had a huge collection of, um, of shark samples in his lab, amongst other animals, um, being a sensory biology lab. And so my other co-supervisor, Dr. Karyopak, uh, or Professor Shark Brain, if you want to call her this way. Professor Shark Brain. Yes, she's out there. She's <laughs> that based, is um, excellent in North Carolina. Uh, at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington now, but she was at EWA as well when I started and she had a huge collection of shark brains over there. So I guess she was the best way to start just um, working from sample off the shelves instead of yeah, going out there and, and um, having to apply for permits and euthanize more animals that that was needed. And the actual sort of lab work that you then did, the comparative anatomy or take us through what some of your experiments were like yeah so going for anatomy is one thing but then what questions exactly so um there is a, a, a nice body of research that has used the um, olfactory bulbs so that part of the brain processing essentially olfactory information so um and this has been used as a proxy or their size their shape or um, the volume has been used as a proxy for olfactory abilities across many animal taxa, um, including fishes. So that was the starting point, is, which was also a research area of my co-supervisor, um, Cara. She had extensively compared the size of these bulbs across many, many shark species and rays and even chimeras. And so the question was, okay, this has been accepted as one way of comparing across fishes but do we know what it means because it's one thing to have a bigger brain structure but if inside you don't have as many neurons because they're less densely packed then maybe your processing power is not as great and so the size might not reveal you what you actually want to test you know so that was one of the biggest questions we wanted to start with so in trying to answer it, I came across a new technique to visualize brains. So MRI, same as for us humans, is one way to do it if you want to um, calculate the volume of a brain area. And it can be a very expensive technique if you have a lot of specimen to go through and not as handy because, yeah, the training and the access to the hospital is a limitation, obviously. So we came across um, that new technique um, using CT. So it's the same as a CT scan, same as humans or akin veterinary science, same kind of apparatus, but quite uh, for smaller samples, so really high resolution. But it had never been used, that imaging tool, to that application. So that was another thing. Let's try to do something new and see if we can get an answer, which we did. Right. So what, yeah, and then what did you find? So what did we found is that, to put it in a nutshell, the volume 
of um, the olfactory bulb was assessed using that technique su successfully. So that was one win. Then we compared the olfactory bulb size across, well, two main representative fish species. So one cartilaginous, a, um, a cat shark. And right. One, so cat and cartilaginous fish are um, fish-like sharks that have, they don't have bones. They have cartilage, right? More or less, yeah. They made their skeleton is mainly cartilage compared to bony fishes. And when we say cartilaginous fishes, also just a precision for those that might be listening and not in that um, field of research, we mean um, shark skates and rays. They call the lasmobranchs, but there is also chimeras. And all of that are cartilaginous fishes. So right. coming back to your question, um, the main founding is that, yeah, we use that new, that novel imaging tool to get, the volume of the bulbs in the two representative species. But then we used an, another microscopy technique to get the number of neurons entering the olfactory bulb and exiting. So we could actually test if whether or not the volume was meaning something. And we did. We actually found that uh, in the cartilaginous species, there was much more neurons entering the olfactory bulb and they were packed the same as in the bony um, species, the bony fish species. So we could tell that based on how they are compacted or the, how dense they are, which was exactly the same between the, sense, this, the two different species, it was just based on a difference of neuron entering that brain area that, that explained how the olfactory bulb was bigger. So what does this mean, I guess, for the, um, for the broader understanding of sharks? Well, that, that's an entirely new thing. It's not a discovery per se, but it's a new finding, let's say. Nobody has looked into, into that before and been able to justify that using the size of that brain structure is actually truly indicative of how much information they are processing. But that, that's just telling you a number, a capacity, if you like, of processing information. But it's not telling you how each neuron receiving the information and conveying to the brain um, how tuned they are so that's more a physiological question if you like and a lot more work has been done in bony fishes and I couldn't go there during my PhD research but it still needs to be answered for sharks for sure so it's one thing to have the numbers so you have a lot of lot more connections apparently but then if you don't know how each connection is tuned to the signals you want to pick up then you also miss a part of the information so that big holistic answer I was talking to you about, about yes or no, are they better or not, is still out there. Now, I'm really curious about what got you started in shark smell. How, have you always been fascinated by shark? It's um, something that's always been there, for sure. Um, when I was eight or something like that, first primary school presentation to the class, um, it's daunting, you don't want to do it, but um, they're happy for you to talk about anything. And that's the first time that I talked about sharks. So everything, all the readings, all the books that my mom had bought me or friends of my mom who knew I was into that already. Um, I collected some information or fun facts or stuff, which is misleading. Oh, we don't know about those animals and how unknown they are. And yeah, that's how it started. So Victoria, as a uh, 
shark biologist, what, what is one way, I guess, you know, sharks cop a lot of flack for um, being man eaters, but you know, what is, what is one thing that you want people to understand um, better about the nature of sharks? Uh, the, answer, the first answer that comes to my mind is part of your question is just to better understand them and to seek answers for things you, you, you believe about them um they they're not that well understood and and to be honest even with the research conducted so far we certainly know more but even everything that i said to you today in our session um i can't blunt i can't answer if yes or no they are that good at smelling compared to other animals you know so i think there is a really a call to better understand them or try to and and to better protect and conserve them then um, because there is no way you can tackle big question as sustainable human-animal interaction if you don't understand the subject, and that's both ways. So we have a lot of information for the human side of the story, but for the animal side of the story, there is a lot to answer. So generally understanding more about their ecology or ways to reduce their captures in fisheries, which is their, their highest threat today, or just how how they are the awesome animals that they evolved to be throughout a million years. Um, yeah, it's probably my only take-home message today. Um, well, Dr. Victoria Camillary Ash, uh, fish biologist, um, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Science today. Thank you so much for sharing your passion and your research into shark biology. And I'm certainly going to think differently next time I see sharks either diving or at the aquarium. Absolutely. I'm going to wonder a little bit more about their brain morphology and what they can smell right now. Thank you for having me again. Now, one of the greatest unsolved mysteries of the universe is why is there more matter than antimatter? Is this um, the first part of a joke? Cause, no, it's, no, it's a serious question. It's a very oh, serious sorry. question. Yeah, no, it is. Yeah, yeah. Why did well, the antimatter cross the universe? No, it's not. It didn't, Stuart, it didn't. It no, didn't because is... it disappeared. It disappeared. It disappeared. Look, this is an important question because this question is basically it's the heart of explaining why we exist. Because, of course, we're made out of matter. So if there wasn't more matter than any matter, we wouldn't exist. So it's, it's quite pertinent to our current state of being, some would What's say. What's the matter with you? <sighs> so, look. Now, we've basically known since the 1930s that every particle of matter has a kind of an evil twin, uh, what we call an antiparticle. So antimatter particles, they are literally a mirror version of matter particles, but with opposite charge as well. So uh, like an an electron, for instance, has a negative charge. So an anti-electron has positive charge, which is why it's also known as a positron. Okay? Right. Got it. But what do you you know about antimatter? What's one of the things you know about antimatter from science fiction? Well, oh, well. There's all sorts of science fictions that, you know, you can make starships fly with various antimatter in different stories and stuff. But one thing I do know is if, if antimatter comes in contact with matter, it, dis- it all disappears or it all explodes or something. 
That's right. The um because they're opposites, they cancel each other out. They annihilate, and their combined mass turns into huge amounts of energy via E equals mc squared. Um, but the thing is that it also right. works the other way. So if you have a lot of energy, then you can turn that energy into pairs of particles and antiparticles. So this is where we get confused because at the beginning of the universe, the Big Bang, there was a whole lot of energy and creating all kinds of stuff. So why was it, did it create an unequal amount of matter and antimatter? Because you'd think that if you always get you know, a pair of each, then what, they should be exactly the same numbers. So this is, uh, this is a big puzzle. Uh, basically, to solve it, we have to try and find somewhere in the basic laws of physics where there is not a symmetry between matter and antimatter. We've got to find somewhere where that symmetry is broken. Uh, it might sound like a weird thing. It does to me, certainly. But such symmetries have, in fact, been found. Some small sizes of this symmetry have been found. In the 1960s, there was, they, were, they first found this indication of some asymmetry, but it was, just, it was too small to account for the what we see in the entire universe. But it's, it's a precedent for what we should look for. So we need to keep looking. Now, a paper recently published in the journal Nature by the T2K collaboration, it's, like a, it's based in Japan and involves nearly 500 people. And they were looking to neutrinos to try and find this asymmetry. So you, I'm sure you've heard of neutrinos before. They are fundamental particles. They're very unique among the particles that we know of. They have zero electric charge, hence the neutr bit in the name. Um, and they have a very teeny tiny mass. It was thought for a long time that they had no mass, but in the late 90s, it was figured out that they had a very small mass. Um, they only interact with other particles via the weak nuclear force, and this makes them very hard to detect. So they're all over the place. They're, you know, they're flying through us all the time, but they generally don't interact with things, and so you don't know they're there. But this is actually a kind of a good thing because they're so unique and so hard to detect. It means that there's a lot we don't know about them. There's a lot still to learn. So they're a great place to look for new, exciting physics. Uh, what else do we know? Uh, we know that they come in, there are three different types of neutrino or what we call flavors. Flavors, did you say? Flavors. Okay. Oh, right. So you chocolate, strawberry and vanilla. Well, they're actually electron, muon and tau on, but you know, similar. The, the... <laughs> The Neapolitan of neutrino. Exactly. <laughs> Neutrinopolitan. I was about to say something. I was going to say, unlike Neapolitan ice cream, they can transform into a different flavour as they travel through space. But oh. if you bring your Neapolitan ice cream home from the supermarket and it melts a bit, it's probably going to mix up anyway, isn't it? That's right. So yeah. it just I mean, choc- bra- chocolate's brown. the only one that's ever going to get eaten anyway, right? Yeah, that fluorescent pink one, I don't know what it is. It's not... It's not strawberry, it's just fluorescent pink. I don't know what it is. Anyway, so in this experiment, this is the T2K experiment, what it did, it involved, they created a beam of neutrinos by firing protons into a piece of graphite. Um, so this um, basically was a nuclear, nuclear reaction when they fired the protons with the graphite. It gave off a beam of neutrinos, which were then detected 295 kilometers away, <gasps> um, deep underneath Mount Ikeno, what? In Japan. How do they detect them? They have... It's a detector called the Super Kamiokande. It is a big a big tub of water. It's 50 million litres of ultra-pure water. Um, 50 million litres, if I convert that into standard units, that is 20 Olympic swimming pools. Whoa. And Under a mountain. 
Yeah, under a mountain. It's basically it's so other stuff doesn't get in, other cosmic rays and things don't get in and and mess it up. So they just had this yeah, really pure water, twenty Olympic swimming pools of really pure water, ultra pure. Sorry, not really pure, ultra pure. And essentially, what will happen is occasionally a neutrino will come through. It will hit a nucleus in in that water and it'll knock out a charged particle. Um, and these charged particles can be detected because they're moving so fast. So this is where it gets even weirder, because light. You know, the speed of light is the fastest speed in the universe, but that's the speed of light in a vacuum. Inside, in water or another substance, light slows down. Mm-hmm. So uh, when something, when a charged particle moves faster than the speed of light in the material that it's in, then it gives off the equivalent of a sonic boom, but in, in light. And so it wow. gives off this kind of eerie glow called Cherenkov radiation. If you've ever seen a picture of a nuclear reactor, yeah. like the inside of a nuclear reactor, there's often a blue glow, and that yeah. is particles being given off and moving faster than the speed of light in the water and hence giving off this weird glow. So this is what they do. They look for some light being given off by a neutrino having to strike a, a nucleus in this 20 Olympic swimming pools. I know it sounds pretty unlikely. It is pretty unlikely, to be honest, <laughs> because they, from the paper they published, they, um, they ran this experiment between 2009 and 2018 and they collected 105 detection events which they analysed. Now, 90 of these detections were neutrinos and 15 of them were anti-neutrinos. So they basically detected a very big imbalance between neutrinos and anti-neutrinos. And this was at about a 95% confidence level. Um, so it was a huge difference. Uh, so this is a really good indication that they might have a clue to what's actually going on. Uh, it does, of course, need to be confirmed. Science always needs to be replicated. Uh, plus 95% confidence in terms of particle physics, that's nowhere near good enough. You need to get down to like, you know, 99.9999999% confident before someone will accept it fully. So yeah, they need to basically upgrade their equipment, do a bigger experiment. They are intending to upgrade over the next couple of years, although they're being slowed down a little bit by the current coronavirus pandemic, as are we all. Meanwhile, other new detectors being built that will examine this question. There is a hyper Kamiokande being built, which will be 10 times bigger than the super Kamiokande, if you're impressed by that. I am impressed by that. That is a lot of Olympic swimming pools. That is. In the US, they're also building a detector called the Deep Underground Neutrino Experiment, or DUNE. <gasps> um, oh, wow. I love that acronym. I wonder if there'll, there'll be some sandworms in there as well. Who knows what's going on under the ground? <laughs> But yeah, hopefully if the sandworms don't get them, hopefully they will give us some clue to basically why we all exist, why there is uh, more matter than antimatter and we will have the answer, why are we here? That's all we have time for on another episode of Locked in Science. Thank you, a big thank you to Dr. Kim Johnson for telling us all about some incredible foods, the foods of the future, the impossible foods that we're going to be eating in the future. Locked in Science is recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nation. Uh, and normally recorded in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, but at this time is recorded in the home studios of Claire, Chris and Stu. Locked in Science is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the kind support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. 
please get in touch with us. You can email us. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter. We are there. We are Lost in Science One. Or you can find us on uh, the Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. Or just tune in again next week, wherever you find us, when Stu, Claire, and Chris get locked, locked in. in. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.